Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 4, Episode 3, The Age of Empresses. In the third month of the year 710, Empress Gemmei officially moved her residence and the entire court alongside her to the newly built capital of Heijou-kyo. Gemmei herself was a daughter of the former King Tenji and half-sister to Empress Jito. Through her mother's line, she was descended from the now-extinct but formerly glorious Soga clan. Specifically, she was the granddaughter of Ishii incident conspirator Soga Ishikawa. She more than met the qualifications to inherit the throne, and the boldness with which she relocated the court certainly casts an image of a woman who is very comfortable holding and using political power. The construction of and subsequent move to Heijou-kyo was originally the brainchild of Emperor Mommu, who unfortunately died before he could see his concept come to life. Gemmei Tenno saw it to completion at the beginning of her fourth year on the Chrysanthemum throne. Moving the court, you'll hopefully remember, was not a maneuver free from risk. Now that the coups, upheavals, and succession wars that defined the latter half of the Asuka period appeared to be at an end, it seems the court was ready for a fresh start. There is unfortunately a bit of a historical gray zone when it comes to describing the economics of Nara period Japan. The government began minting coins toward the end of the Asuka period, but for most of the nation, these were little more than shiny trinkets and the barter system won out. Within the gates of the new capital, however, cash was king and a rudimentary capital economy began to emerge. This leaves the question of who was doing the trading, an unfortunately difficult question to answer with any certainty. It seems unlikely that there was any kind of bourgeois class capable of carrying on large-scale trade, and the powerful clans capable of investing the necessary resources for such an endeavor generally held high offices which were forbidden from engaging in trade at all. Dr. William Wayne Ferris has done some fascinating research into this question and has posited that it was most likely low-ranking government officials who pursued such endeavors, often acting on behalf of the higher-ranking bigwigs who funded these adventures in secret. This is the best explanation I've found so far, but I think it might be some time before academia has consensus on the issue. I mentioned Fujiwara Fujito in the last episode, but we ought to take a few moments now to recount his history as he was destined to become the ancestor of some of the most powerful nobles in Japan. The second son of Fujiwara no Kamatari, Fujito bore witness to many political shifts and changes in the nation throughout his childhood. When the succession dispute following King Tenji's death erupted in the Jinshin War, Fujito was only 13 and thus avoided the perils of choosing which side to support before it became apparent 
that Emperor Temmu would ultimately emerge triumphant. Fujito presented himself to the court in 688, near the beginning of Empress Jito's reign, and served ably in a variety of positions. In 697, he earned the special favor of Empress Jito when he full-throatedly supported the succession of her grandson, Prince Karu. He arranged a marriage between the prince and his daughter Miyako, and in 701, she gave birth to a baby boy with a bright future. After establishing himself as Crown Prince Karu's protector and champion, Fujito's fortunes rose dramatically. He was promoted to Chunagon, a middle-ranking counselor who at times directly advised the chancellor. Throughout the first decade of the 700s, he was showered with promotions, both in rank and office. In 708, shortly after Empress Gemmei was installed as sovereign, Fujito was rewarded for his loyalty with the office of Udaijin, Minister of the Right. The office of Sadaijin, Minister of the Left, was not vacant during this time, but was filled by Isonokami Maro, a man with Mononobe clan ancestry. Rather than joining the court in the luminous new capital, Maro was ordered to stay behind in Fujiwara-kyo, in the role of a kind of city manager. This marginalization is generally understood as an unofficial demotion for the aging Sadaijin, now 70, and a big promotion for Fujiwara Fujito, who was now the de facto supreme leader of the nation. The office of Daijo Daijin, or Chancellor, was also not vacant in this period, but occupied by Prince Hozumi, the fifth son of Emperor Temmu. It is commonly inferred from the poetry contributions attributed to him in the Manyoshu that he had been caught in an illicit affair with his late brother's widow and was subsequently banished to the mountaintop temple of Sufukuji in Omi province, where he took monastic orders and lived out the rest of his days as a monk. While we are not exactly certain of his fate, he doesn't seem to have had any noticeable effect on Nara period politics. While the court no doubt had its share of sycophantic social climbers, Fujiwara Fujito appears to have been a dedicated public servant. He led the effort to establish an updated set of laws, the Yoro Code, to supplement the existing Taiho Code, as well as providing more specific definitions of the duties and expectations of various offices throughout the government. Sadly, the complete Yoro Code is lost to history, but we do have some surviving fragments from quotations in later sources from the time when it still existed. Fujito's second wife would also become the founder of a powerful Kuge clan. Agata Inukai Michio had served faithfully as a court lady to Empress Jito, as well as wet nurse to Prince Karu, who would later become Emperor Momu. She originally married a member of the Yamato dynasty who was not eligible for the throne, one Prince Minu, 
and gave birth to two sons and a daughter. Prince Minu seems to have spent most of his time serving at the Dazaifu court on Kyushu until his death in 708. Shortly thereafter, at Gemmei's ascension party, the newly crowned empress honored Agata Inukai with a kabane, a hereditary title. She was given a cup with a mandarin orange floating inside, a reference to the new name she was about to receive. The name was Tachibana, which is the Japanese word for mandarin orange. The full title was Tachibana Sukune, but her descendants would be known as the Tachibana clan. Her first son, Prince Minu's child, adopted the new Kabane name and styled himself Tachibana Moroe. Shortly after all of this, Tachibana Michio married Fujiwara Fujito and bore him two daughters. Shortly after the move to Heijo-kyo, the Kojiki was completed at long last. The work began with Emperor Temmu ordering a courtier named Heida Are to collect the existing stories of the royal lineage and clan origins by memorizing the stories through oral tradition. Presumably, he would recite this pedigree in court, either to help settle legal disputes or for entertainment. It was Empress Gemmei, however, who was credited with the idea that someone really ought to write these things down in a manner similar to the way the Chinese had recorded their own folklore and mythic tradition. The courtier to whom she assigned this monumental task was named O Yasumaro, a man who may have been the son of O Honji, whom you may recall from last season helped prevent King Kobun from contacting any allies east of Mino province. We can't be certain that O Yasumaro was O Honji's son, but it is a possibility. O Yasumaro consulted with Heida Are, transcribing as he recited the mythic tales of Japan's beginning and the stories of the gods of old. They began their work in 711 and finished the next year, presenting the massive three-volume work to Empress Gemmei. The Kojiki provided legitimacy for the Yamato dynasty by establishing their status as the descendants of gods and thus gods on earth themselves. And it helped create a Japanese mythology distinct from the tales and myths of China and Korea. As the oldest storybook in Japan, its publication in early 712 marks the beginning of Japanese literature. Because of the importance of this milestone, I will read selected passages from the Kojiki in a bonus episode later this season, so look forward to that. While Empress Gemmei seemed to focus on cultural affairs, Fujiwara Fujito kept busy with his legal and administrative reforms. In 712, the northernmost region of Tohoku was divided into Dewa and Mutsu provinces, though this was more of a paper reform than an actual on-the-ground change. This area was still primarily occupied by the Eimishi, and while they didn't go out of their way to provoke the imperial court, neither did they welcome official interference into their lives. The later administrative divisions created in 713 
essentially created more provinces throughout Chugoku and Kyushu, which meant more titles for the Kuge to compete for. In addition to this reorganization, Fujito arranged for the creation of documents we now call Fudoki, which are a combination of census, resource accounting, local legends and folk tales, as well as detailed physical descriptions of the various provinces. While most of these fudoki have been lost to the ravages of time, those of Harima, Hitachi, and Izumo provinces still exist and have even been translated into English. Upgrades to regional infrastructure were likewise the order of the day. The roads in Mino province were expanded into wider avenues to accommodate more travelers and encourage commerce. Mino province at the time served as a gateway to the Kanto, and it seems likely that Fujiwara Fujito intended to ensure that the provinces in that remote region paid their fair share of tribute. In 715, Empress Gemmei supported an effort by Fujito to further divide the regional administrative governments into what we call the Gori system. The existing system defined provinces or kuni, which were divided into counties or kori, each of which was composed of many villages or sato. The gori system added an administrative layer between the counties and villages, essentially combining two or three villages into a unit described as a township or go. This provided, again, more official appointments and titles to satisfy the many lower-ranking kuge competing for better appointments. Later that year, the empress decided that it was finally time to retire. She was 54 years old and grew concerned about the power vacuum that could result from her sudden death. The chaos that had followed King Tenji's passing still cast a long shadow over the imperial family, and while Gemmei wanted to ensure that her own death would not result in a civil war, her grandson for whom she had been holding the throne was now only 14 years old. Gemmei needed a successor whom she could trust to pass the throne to the late Emperor Mommu's son when he was ready. She chose her own daughter, the young emperor-in-waiting's aunt. In late 715, Empress Gemmei retired, and her daughter was elevated to the chrysanthemum throne. She is remembered as Empress Gensho, and she remains, spoiler alert, the only female Tenno to succeed a fellow female Tenno. Naturally, although Gensho was now the official sovereign, Fujiwara Fujito was still essentially running the country. Fujito had a good reason for supporting Gensho's elevation, and ultimately that of the young crown prince Obito. He had arranged for one of his daughters to be married to the heir, and was eager to see his son-in-law placed on the throne, and perhaps even hoped to help his grandchildren to be appointed as sovereigns as well. In 718, Fujito and his collection of scholars, administrators, and scribes at last completed the law code they had long been composing. This is known as the Yoro Code, as I mentioned earlier. However, while it was completed relatively early in the Nara period, 
it wouldn't be established as accepted, promulgated law until much later. Fujito himself would not live to see it finally installed. In 720, another major work of Japanese literature was completed. This, at long last, is the Nihon Shoki, a chronicle of Japan's history written to establish an incredibly ancient nature for the Yamato dynasty that stretched back more than a thousand years before the Nara period. While the Kojiki was generally used by Japan's native populace to understand their origins and a proper place in the world around them, the Nihon Shoki was a work that was specifically intended for export. Copies of the National Chronicle were distributed to the courts of the Tang Dynasty, as well as Silla, and given as gifts to visiting dignitaries. I should note here that both the Nihon Shoki and the Kojiki were partly written thanks to previously existing sources for which we no longer have extant copies. This is a great loss to many historians who postulate that the history of the Yamato monarchs before the Nara period likely featured different preceding dynasties before the Sun line. Perhaps future discoveries will help shed light on the murky Yayoi period which the surviving accounts claim to describe. The Nihon Shoki is yet another work that is attributed to Emperor Temmu, who organized the first efforts to craft a grand national chronicle in the style of the epic histories utilized by leaders in China. It was compiled in part through the written records kept by various clans, as well as records which had been brought by refugees from Baekje when that Korean kingdom fell to the Tang dynasty and Silla. Meanwhile, trouble erupted on Kyushu when the governor of Osumi province, a man named Yako Fujitomaro, was murdered during an uprising. Osumi is in the very south of Kyushu, and the subjects over which Fujitomaro had been ruling were mostly Hayato people. The Hayato were a tribal group whom we believe were largely descended from the Jomon people and seem to have still been keeping to the old communal ways of living. As the imperial court began to implement Ritsuryo reforms on Kyushu as a way of practically expanding their power, the forced redistribution of fields to individual farmers clashed with the Hayato's custom of collectively managing their cultivation land. While this is often cited as the primary motivation behind this uprising, the Hayato had been dissatisfied with Yamato hegemony over their land for some time, and this incident was merely the spark that lit the fuse. Empress Gensho and Fujiwara Fuhito responded swiftly to the rebellion, appointing Otomo Tabito as Sei Hayato Ji Setsutai Shogun, a title which literally translates to the great general who suppresses the Hayato. He flew from the capital to Tazaifu, gathering 10,000 soldiers from both the local garrison and from the neighboring regions. They ventured south, besieging fortifications along the way, until five of the seven forts on the island's southern portion were under imperial control. While the chronicles call these fortifications castles, 
I have opted to describe them as forts because they were, essentially, mostly wooden forts built on hilltops. The term castle conjures an imposing stone-reinforced structure, which frankly doesn't resemble any of these forts at all. Although these structures may not meet my standards for what makes a proper castle, the last two of them, where the remaining Hayato were sheltered, sat atop very steep hills and were built considerably well. This conflict would not end until 721, about a year and a half after it had begun. The end result, as you may have guessed, was an imperial victory and a defeat for the Hayato. Many of the rebel tribesmen were brought to Heijou-kyo in chains and presented to Empress Gensho as objects of curiosity. Many of the sons and daughters of the remaining Hayato leaders were likewise brought to the capital as hostages. While the term hostage tends to have a rather negative connotation today, these were not bound and gagged captives being fed subsistence meals from behind a blindfold. They were treated kindly and often educated and even given low-level jobs in the bureaucracy as pages. Those who cooperated were elevated in rank and gradually became accustomed to the Yamato way. This process of assimilation was not universal among the Hayato people, most of whom still lived on Kyushu and weren't exactly welcome in the distant capital. It is estimated that even after the rebellion of 720, there were still tens of thousands of Hayato living throughout southern Kyushu, and while some decided to assimilate after the disastrous uprising, there were others who still harbored resentment against the imperial government for daring to tread upon their ancient traditions. While the government had triumphed in this particular struggle, they were not eager to press their luck. They gave the Hayato a pass on the equal field system for now, allowing them to continue their community farming without further harassment. Kyushu, as a whole, would not completely fall in line with Ritsu-ryo until 800, a full 80 years after this uprising. The Hayato who went to Heijou-kyo eventually returned to their communities, and it became somewhat trendy for tribal leaders to send their children to the capital for education and governance training. This was not a one-way cultural exchange, and many people in Heijou-kyo came to appreciate some of the offerings of Hayato culture. There is a traditional court dance called the Hayato dance, which is based on a popular dance that became trendy in capital entertainment because of the Hayato presence during the Nara period. I'll post some videos of the Hayato dance on this episode's supplementary post on the website ahistoryofjapan.com, as the dance is still performed today. In late 720, while the Hayato uprising was still being resolved, Fujiwara Fuhito died, leaving the ascendant Fujiwara clan in the hands of his eldest son, Muchimaro. He was promoted to the position of Chunagon, or Middle Counselor. This was an advisory position, but it included vast potential for advancement. His three younger brothers had government careers of their own, and we'll discuss those careers in more detail in a few episodes. In 717, three years before the death of Fujiwara Fuhito, his third son, Fujiwara Umakai, 
joined a diplomatic mission to the Tang court of China. These missions served in part as a sort of study abroad program, and those who embarked would study under the various learned masters of China in subjects like medicine, government, and art styles. The official delegation would present tribute to the Tang Emperor and receive gifts in return, which they would take back to the imperial court on their return trip. These missions lasted about a year, and then the delegates would travel to Dezaifu and be readmitted, and then travel on to Heijou-kyo. Aside from Fujiwara Umakai, there were three young men who deserve special mention for their involvement with this particular diplomatic mission. The most famous of these three is probably Abe Nakamaro. While the others eventually returned to Japan, Nakamaro chose to stay behind in China and continue studying philosophy and government. After passing the civil service exam, he accepted a position in the Tang bureaucracy and served in Luoyang province. He tried to return to Japan several times, but Every attempt was thwarted by shipwrecks or rebellions, and in 770 he died in Chang'an while making plans once more to return to his homeland. He was 72 years old. The other two young men were a scholar named Kibi Makibi and a Buddhist monk named Gembo. These travelers likewise remained in-country long after their embassy had departed, but unlike Abe Nakamaro, they managed to return to the imperial court when the next diplomatic mission took its return trip 17 years later. Kibi Makibi and Gembo would both prove to be transformational figures when they returned to their homeland, and we'll cover their later impact on the Nara period a few episodes from now. Although Fujiwara Muchimaro was promoted after his father Fujito's death, another courtier would actually step into his vacant office. Promoted to the post of Udaijin was the highest-ranking minister at court, a member of the imperial family named High Prince Nagaya. Before he ascended to become the most powerful kuge in all of Japan, Nagaya had served the court in various positions for years, climbing up the ranks in the process. It is possible that he and Fujito were rivals before he took the late minister's job, but many historians point out that Nagaya was Fujito's son-in-law, as one of his wives was indeed Fujito's daughter. I'm more inclined to believe that their relationship was likely more complicated than we can really comprehend. While we are still uncertain of the friendliness or rivalry between Nagaya and Fujito, there can be no doubts about the antagonistic relationship the prince cultivated with Fujito's four sons. It seems they resented Nagaya's installation into an office which had been held by their father and which they thus considered their birthright. Nonetheless, Nagaya had the support of Empress Gensho, as well as other members of the imperial family, who perhaps feared that the Fujiwara were becoming too powerful. In 721, Retired Empress Gemmei grew terribly ill and sought to more firmly secure her grandson, Crown Prince Obito's, eventual succession. 
in what may have been meant as a conciliatory gesture aimed at bringing peace between the Fujiwara sons and the high prince, the retired empress, still clearly occasionally taking the reins of government, arranged for both Nagaya and the second Fujiwara son, Fusasaki, to be named as co-guardians of her descendant. She died soon thereafter. High Prince Nagaya's primary claim to administrative success is the Sanzei Ishin no Ho, or Act of Possession for Three Generations Initiative. This was essentially a program intended to encourage the expansion of farmland nationwide. If a person reclaimed wild land for use in cultivation, then under this law, that land would remain tax-free for three generations and then be subject to taxation when the original cultivator's grandson died. While it seems a decent idea on paper, this would not work out quite so neatly in the real world, and we will see how various people and organizations found exploitable loopholes in this law later on this season. In 724, Empress Gensho retired, and in her official statement, named Crown Prince Obito as her son. Biologically, of course, she was his aunt, but this adoption was meant as an extra measure of security against anyone considering questioning his right to rule. High Prince Nagaya and Fujiwara Fusasaki seem to have fulfilled their part faithfully and helped ensure that the Crown Prince's succession was unchallenged. He is remembered as Emperor Shomu. Empress Gensho, now a Daijo Tenno, would continue to intervene periodically on behalf of her nephew for reasons which shall become clear in a few episodes. Both Empresses Genmei and Gensho are interesting historical rulers who, by most accounts, did pretty well for themselves and their nation. Genmei's relocation of the capital to Heijou-kyo, much closer to the growing port city of Naniwa, proved a sound decision as the city eventually would be home to an estimated 75 to 100,000 people. While this is small by modern standards, it was quite large for Japan in the 700s. We'll explore Emperor Shomu's early life in a few episodes, as well as the growing rifts between the Fujiwara brothers and High Prince Nagaya. If Empress Genmei hoped that the two factions would learn to work together through the shared guardianship of the Crown Prince, that hope was about to be dashed to pieces. Next time, however, we'll travel west to discuss developments in China and Korea in the late 600s and early 700s before returning to the rivalries of Japan's imperial court. Thank you.